Hello world, this is uh, the episode number three of a live video podcast, Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change. And today's topic is facilitating large scale cultural change. And I want to start this episode with a kind of a funky riffing of a quote that most likely many of you have already heard. It comes from a famous management pioneer called Peter Drucker. And it's already a couple of decades old, but he said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, which basically means you can have a lot of funky ideas if the culture within the organization or the system or the ecosystem is not quite aligned with the strategy, then the strategy is like not worth a penny. So what if instead we could consciously create and facilitate and navigate through the various gridlocks of culture to align with strategy? And in today's episode, before I hand over to introductions to my distinguished guests, I want to lean into something that we as humanity don't know because we don't know how a planetary civilization in a couple of decades will look like. It's the same as if we were to look from the end of the First World War into the Declaration of Human Rights after the Second World War. It doesn't make sense. It's like, like history can only be understood in the back uh, like mirror, but we know that we need to evolve towards a planetary civilization ahead because almost all grand challenges ahead are on a global scale. So facilitating large scale cultural change needs to listen into the seeds on a local level, on a meso level, like bioregional level, ecosystemic level, and national level, to then try to sense into what are the learnings, but maybe also what are the questions? What are we sitting with that we don't know towards that birthing? And before, before that, maybe, uh, and with that, I hand over to Pamela to witness the dying and the decay, and maybe also the fertile composting uh, of yeah, the paradigm we find ourselves still living in. So with that blurb, I'd be delighted if Pamela from Sabeljar, a dear friend of mine, could introduce herself and link to the topic ahead. Pamela. Mm. Thank you, Alistair, and thank you for the possibility to be here with such a profound company as the three of you. Uh, and I can notice I get a slight nervous when I'm going to introduce myself. I always think that's a bit awkward and odd. Um, so I'm just going to center myself again. Uh, so I will make it quite short. And I would say that some maybe would call me a radical facilitator and speaker on the evolutionary edge. I am devoted to... Um, explore life deeply and in what way 
we can facilitate the shift and the culture in between us by actually foster the conditions for emergence. Like to really let go of concepts that we already know about and ideas that maybe are not what wants to be a part of the future, but it's more a part of the, the old. And um, I usually say that I, I live, lead, create, and dialogue from Eros, the evolutionary impulse itself. And yeah, I, maybe I would stop there. And I hope that would be a part of the conversation moving forward, because I do see it is a vital part of the systemic shift we're in from the perspective that I hold. So anyone of you two who feels pulled to keep on introducing yourself there, I give the space over to you. Well, to avoid awkward silences, I will go next. By the way, Alistair, if you could keep reminding me that I'm distinguished, that would be very helpful, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I, uh, so my name's Ross. I am a co-founder of The Weaving Lab, which I'll, I can explain very briefly again. Um, and I'm also a co-lead of the Learning Societies portfolio with the Jacobs Foundation. I'm calling from Zurich today, which is where the uh, Jacobs family are based. Um, I'm preoccupied or even perhaps obsessed with the question, how can we move towards um, or in the direction of thriving or what I might also call universal well-being, the wholly interdependent well-being of the individual, of all people and of the planet together, which has led me into um, an equal obsession with the question, how can we connect with ourselves, with each other to a shared purpose? How can we collaborate for deep and enduring systemic impact? And how can we learn together and evolve together consciously in this direction of thriving or, or universal well-being? And that this uh, practice of well-being or the, there is this um, kind of uh, metaphor of uh, weaving, which is a metaphor which means the practice of connecting people of collaborating for systemic impact and of learning together towards universal well-being and i am as i say preoccupied with this and part of this i think or perhaps even the essence of the, this is how to create culture it's looking at the spaces between the nodes in a community or a team or an organization or a population it's looking at the relationships in other words between people paying particular attention to what's happening in between the spaces and i think for me that is at the heart of of this question of culture and i'd just very briefly also say that what also comes to mind is something that i've been uh challenged with regularly over the past year or two particularly which is this distinction between being and doing and it sounds in a way when you hear that quote from uh, Peter Drucker, it sounds like there's this kind of distinction being made between culture and strategy as if they're two entirely separate things. And I often hear this distinction between 
being and doing, people saying, oh, we need to get things done. We need to get things done. And then half of the people saying, no, we need just to be a certain way and everything will become well again. And for me, I don't think these are actually separable, particularly at all. So again, I'm interested in that space in between the connection between things. Um, and hopefully we can explore that a little further today. I guess that leaves me. Um, thank you, Ross and Pamela and Alistair for inviting me and for the guests that are watching this. And I guess um, in terms of introduction, uh, maybe I'd like to share with you what breaks my heart and what feeds my soul, because that kind of gets to the essence of me. And then what am I most interested in and passionate about? Um, it breaks my heart to see a world of such suffering in all its manifestations, particularly because it's so unnecessary, particularly now, which speaks to, you know, kind of the topic that I hope that we're going to be unveiling today. And, the, you know, the more I look at it, the more I hear, the more I feel, the more it hurts. But, you know, what also feeds my soul is I feel like we're on the cusp of a new beginning, something that wants to be born, something that is uh, ready to take shape in the world. But it needs players. It needs people to recognize it, and pay attention. And for those that are kind of on the leading edge of this, they see it. But for much of the world, they don't know it exists yet. It's not been made visible. It's not uh, present to them. And that's part of the next work is how do we make what we see more visible to everybody else so that they can see it and then put their shoulder to the wheel and be filled with hope. And the things that I'm most interested in that uh, really feed my work um, I'm in Austin, Texas. Um, I was a co-founder of uh, contemplativelife.org, which is a digital hub that connects people and communities with transformative practices. And I'm interested in the transformation of the inner life. Um, and then the other thing that I'm most interested in is the transformation of the outer world. And I currently serve as the managing director for a nonprofit called Pro Social World, which uh, aim is really about consciously evolving a world that works for all. So it's good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, so when I sense into the space in between of the four of us, I sense it makes sense most to unpack some concepts for the people watching and also for those listening in on the podcast audio only later. So when I was listening to Pamela, I heard the word eros, which maybe some people would not connect to cultural change and facilitation. When I was listening to Ross, I clearly felt the need that we don't artificially disentangle, let's say, the systems piece 
the outer piece, the strategy piece with the culture um, piece and listening into Jeff and then I trust who, who picks on what is that we're finding us at a cusp in space-time on this planet where it becomes abundantly clear that scarcity in the crumbling paradigm is not from all perspectives, but from most perspectives, just artificially created and creates vast amounts of unnecessary suffering. And with that, I would like to hand it into the middle and literally just sense into who wants to riff off that. Could I ask, Jeff, I'd be really interested to understand when you talk about suffering, could you just expand on your conception of that, please? Yeah, it's, it's on so many levels. Um, there's the suffering on the individual level uh, that we're separate somehow from each other and from our world and from cosmic creation. So that's a deep angst that many human beings suffer from. There's uh, the suffering of selfishness um, and greed that uh, results in myriads of uh, painful intrusions in other people's sense of well-being. And then there's the suffering of all of the ecosystems and all of the, the systems of the earth is a result of greed and selfishness and ignorance. And so it's on multiple levels, on the individual level, on the level of human society and on the level of the earth itself. And I'm struck, thanks for clarifying, I'm struck, Pamela, before we joined, you were talking about life and death, which I'm, I wonder if it's worth us just explore. I'd be quite interested again, your perspective on this idea of suffering versus birth, etc. Mm. Yeah, I could, I could bridge, like, because I do also see that we have a narrative around both death and birth that actually are bringing suffering. Mm -hmm. um, like, um, we have a, I, I can, right now we'll just stand on my own culture. I'm hosted right now in south of Sweden, in the north, uh, the north hemisphere of our globe. And here we have a narrative around death. You could boil it down to two perspectives. And one, you should prevent death from happening forever, like <laughs> as much as you can, you know, get it, get it so far away from you as you can. And two, if you're dying, you should you should have as much time as possible. And and these two perspectives, as I see it, takes away the dignity and the wisdom around death. Like the deep trust in that death and birth is the fabric of this reality. Uh, so what would happen if we would enter a either deeper gravity point? 
of letting go into death and letting go into birth and allowing these forces to bring us uh, into, into that point where we are supposed to go. Like I, I see that life uh, constantly is a movement and, and I see it also not just on an individual, like a personal level of you birth a child or you, you leave your life, you're dying, but also on a systemical level of how much we are holding on to a system that is not working anymore and instead of hosping, hospice them gentle and wise and bring the wisdom from this system and bring them with us and allowing what needs to die to die. And, 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 and in that letting go, um, me personally, I can, oh, for me sometimes it's just simpler to, to ground it into personal experience, even if it's about a systemic change. I'm, I'm just talking a personal experience as an archetype for a bigger a picture. Like one thing that I had the possibility to explore even deeper under this fall, I had several losses, like death has been very present and it's still very present. I am um, losing some very dear friends in a close timeline. And what I notice is what happens if we truly let go of resistance, resistance the resistance of what wants to die and are already dying and following that movement of the life that lays underneath it. Um, so I just see that we could facilitate the shift we're in with less suffering and more um, ease in the movement. And that's not like a birth is still contractions and it's still pain and it can be orgasmic and easeful and peaceful uh, because we as humans, like as, the, as a species or humanity, we are, are, we are um, extraordinary resilient creatures. So we do also have a, a whole painkiller system that can be activated in our hormone system. Um, so yeah, I just see there are perspectives that you could take from the individual to the group and to the, uh, the more macro level uh, of just say, is there a narrative that could serve us in the shift that will take us away from suffering, feeling the pain and letting go of what is for actually receiving the new that is already existing? As you, Jeff, said in your introduction that there are people already on the edge, as, it, as I have understood it when I read systemic theory, that people, there's always been frontiers who stands on the edge and can smell the future. So, yeah, what if there is a ease that can come in? I don't know what that evokes in the two of you. I, I notice I take up a lot of time here responding to you, Ross, but I wonder what, what it brings for you when you hear this. There's something that it actually invoked in me, and that is that you can tell a lot about a culture of people, about how they live, in terms of how they approach death and dying. Uh, I spent years as a hospice volunteer and you know, some of the richest moments of my life, because when you're around 
somebody that's dying actively um, and you don't have an ax to grind. You have no history with them. You're not going to poke them or prick them or ask them to do something. You have an opportunity to simply be with them, which I discovered was the thing that most dying people want the most. They just want the presence of another human being with nothing attached to it. But in I also spent years kind of working at end of life. Um, and uh, at least in the United States, uh, there's such fear that people hand over their loved ones to an industry that they know nothing about. And uh, oftentimes um, are sometimes taken advantage of. Um, but there's other cultures that have a very much different approach to death as a natural part of the process and even something that can be celebrated, which can help with the, um, the healing uh, process um, uh, and the, the also facilitating the process of the soul, you know, that's moving on as well. And so I think that part of what I'm seeing is that everything's cyclical, everything's spiral. Um, so what's been before has come again, but off, but what's happened is that we've lost our way, which is why the indigenous elders are so important to this next phase of the process. And also the maternal instincts, the feminine presence, which is going to lead the way, I'm confident of it, um, is that so much of this is reclaiming. You know, just like we had midwives, they had to reclaim how we're born. We have to reclaim how we're dying. Um, we have to reclaim so many things. It's not new. It's actually ancient, but we've forgotten. So in, in the room in the middle of the three of us, I feel like I, I need to share a story. So it's, uh, I did not remember that story for 15 years. The first time I went to India for a prolonged episode in my life in my early 20s, at the very beginning, I met a Sikh for the first time in my life. And he was pretty well off. And I met him on pilgrimage and he invited me to the death party. I don't know how to better express it in my awkward German English of his mother-in-law who died in her late 80s it was in um in uh, in the north west of india so we're driving through the fields and i'm preparing for a ceremony where everybody is crying and complaining and it was a feast it was a huge party there were more than 1000 people they were like literally they came up from a very well off family and they were celebrating the life of that human being that died. So if I translate that with what I would call the dignity of modernity, because we tend to only complain about the system crumbling, but the last couple of hundred years also brought something, let's say, it also birthed beautiful things into culture and onto this planet. And, and I feel it's, it's, it's celebrating this, for example, modern technology or the fact that we as male and female can work and live and, you know, 
share conversations as rich as this together, but also help hospicing the, the excess of the system, like the unhealthy, uh, unintegrated uh, parts of it. Yeah, so I felt literally just like sharing that, that image of how we can celebrate hospicing uh, the crumbling paradigm. And do you think that ability to celebrate death requires a certainty of what's coming next? And if it does, this may be a problem because I think a lot of people who are hanging on to these problematic systems that we're currently lumbered with, I think are totally uncertain about what comes next and are terrified, understandably, about what comes next. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you're pointing at something that I see is utterly important, Ross. Because what if it what if it is about letting go before you and step into the unknown? And I and and again, you know, like allowing yourself to navigate the unknown with the awkwardness of not knowing. Uh, of, 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 but and that's what I tried to say before, like with that deep sense of trust that life will bring a new cycle of something. Even if we don't know what that is, we can trust the birth and death because that's that's life. Um, yeah, so I wonder if I see that. I don't know if that was what you mean, Jeff. I noticed that you, if I heard right, you mentioned the feminine. And, and I don't know what that word contains for you, but one thing that comes up for me is that if you say that feminine is a quality that sits in both men and women, but women are designed to birth children and stepping into labor is to step into the unknown, especially when you do it for the first time. But there, when that force of life moves through you, the only thing you have is if you really wanted to make it easy for you is to let go. And, and yes, in one way, you know, it's going to be a child <laughs> uh, and you don't know the journey. You don't know the journey. Uh, and and so yeah, I I wonder if what you're pointing at, Ross. If I look at, I lift it up on a systemic change level. Is that something that that we need more of to to be able to let go and hospice the old before we even know what the new is? Yeah, and I don't know why, but I feel pulled to you, Jeff. I, don't, I wonder what's alive for you right now. Well, I think that it's possibly um, uh, an individual or a collective, you know, family or culture's perception of what comes after is one part of it. But I feel like if we got to the root of what is the systemic causes of so many of these aberrations that are occurring, I believe that it's because we don't know who we are. We've lost the sense of who we are in our essence, and it's all fragmented. So that's the bad news. The good news is I'm seeing um, the evolution, the development of a new story that's emerging. And this new story that's emerging isn't coming from anyone or anywhere in particular. It's a collective unfolding. And I think that the pandemic has actually facilitated it. One of the things that I've observed in the last you know, 18 months 
is with the work that I'm doing globally with organizations and people is a shift in consciousness along three lines. One is a realization of how frail we are as human beings. We're fragile. The second is the realization of our interconnectedness. Undeniable. And it's a collective experience now. This isn't new for some people, but it's new for many people. And then the third thing, and maybe the most important thing it's related to this conversation, is a great realization of the need for cooperation. We need to cooperate. We need to cooperate on many levels for many reasons, and we need to cooperate now. And so the question becomes, well, how? We recognize the, the need, but the, the, the how-to. And my sense is, is that this emergence of this new story is, um, is working in parallel with the means by which uh, human beings can cooperate and begin to solve some of these things. And once enough of the human family can begin to identify what this new story is, then my sense is that things are going to evolve very, very rapidly. And that's the good news. That's the hope. Just, just to respond to that, Jeff, if I may, I fully agree with all of that. I sometimes worry, however, that I'm in a bubble of people who are adopting or even creating this new story. And I worry about those who aren't in that bubble. Hmm. Um, what happens to those folk who, when things really take off, what happens to those people who aren't catching up and are falling behind? And is this in itself new story? Is it creating a polarization, which is going to create more suffering? And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's inevitable, in fact, that we, uh, that there is going to be more suffering in order to um, evolve. But I don't know. It is something that troubles me. I don't have any answers to that, by the way. Would be interested in your perspectives. I, I feel totally drawn. So, with the whole metaphor of the hospicing and celebrating death, a very dangerous, also prevalent in retro romantic circles, often in permaculture circles, is this nothing could be better if the paradigm now crumbles and i strongly disagree and i would say science is in favor of making a strong disclaimer on that because the likelihood of the whole of culture spiraling back to hordes and tribes and violence and um, civil war conditions is very likely so if we hospice the emerging, like the, the, the old paradigm and want to assist the birthing of the new paradigm clearly on the systems piece, it's this transition towards unlimited amounts of renewable energy. Because once we don't have any problems on the energy level, then a lot of the edges and problems of agriculture, abundance in economies, regenerative ecosystems become super simple. And I certainly know inside of me 
that this is just artificially created scarcity of of a vast amount of renewable energies or maybe even zero point energy i don't know right um because it serves the interests of a few and this is where like the power imbalances become like a crucial topic we need to address because unless the vast majority know and like know and breathe that most of the crumbling paradigm i'm not saying everything but most of the crumbling paradigm is just artificially created to serve the interests of very few and once you you dig that then actually there's a lot of hope in the middle a lot of hope i personally don't believe that it needs to be very difficult but the transition needs to be very well facilitated and this is where definitely um yeah this is the space where we as humanity we we don't know but definitely just hospicing is not enough so we need to at the same time build the transition midwife the new yeah midwife the new yeah definitely well, there's you know something else uh, about that addresses I, I feel like to me the hopeful part of what you're pointing at ross and it's a really important one um and that is so my my great interest is in transformation of the inner life and transformation of the outer world and i believe both are necessary because if you just focus on the outer and you, you never get to the inner <laughs> if you just focus on the inner um then you haven't really tested with the outer um and so you know contemplation um work on the inner self through lots of different practices there's myriads of them um and action contemplation and action are two sides of the same coin um because those that have done a lot of contemplative work and a lot of different uh, practices of meditation and uh, many other, you know, uh, somatic practices, um, emotional practices um, that never really give it away, uh, stretch themselves out into the community where it's difficult. Um, the sense is, is that the real fruits of the contemplative life are are what you're doing when you're not sitting on a cushion or something like that it's when you're not practicing that's the evidence of the fruit of practice so if you have the inner and you don't have the outer it's incomplete um and it's so but you also have this rise in activism because so many people are hurting um and uh, if activism isn't rooted in something that is deep and meaningful, oftentimes it can become what it opposes or look like what it opposes oftentimes. And so it's almost as if the contemplatives need to become more active in their life and the activists could benefit from becoming more contemplative. And the sense is, is that when, when both individuals and groups work on the inside work and on the outside work, the natural effect of that is compassion. It's caring. Ultimately, Pamela, it's it's eros. That's really a, a better word for it, ultimately. Um, and if it doesn't have that, it's incomplete. 
and ultimately it's empty. And do you have a sense of how we might draw people into contemplative practices and activism? I mean, I meet people all the time who um, seem oblivious to the suffering, you know, or whatever we call that, the problems of the world, or who are not oblivious, they're aware, but they feel perhaps impotent and or seem to be entirely inactive. And contemplation is something I find quite rare in people. And I wonder to what extent or how we, how does one draw people into even considering contemplation or activism or perhaps rather contemplative activism as you're suggesting? Well, I, I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but here's my answer to that is that it's not about uh, drawing people into it. And it's not about creating a story because my sense is, is that both of those are happening naturally. They're happening organically. They're not driven from uh, any one place. It's like everywhere and nowhere. And so um, it's, it's by, you know, I think they say in Al-Anon, it's by attraction, not promotion. Um, and my sense in, I spent years of my life studying contemplative traditions all over the world, um, and, and, and their practices. And what I discovered through that process, spending time in monasteries and ashrams and temples and working with indigenous elders and working with really young children, adults, people that are dying, is that everyone is contemplative. It's not the exception, it's the rule. It goes with the territory because everybody has an inner life. That's the contemplative dimension, the mystery of their own inner life. But how they approach that, practices and such, is very personal. It's very unique. So I think the, the, the real good thing and the thing where the work needs to be done is that everybody's contemplative. Let's start with that. That's the common ground. But how you meet that mystery, it could be through nature, it could be through art and music, it could be through, you know, traditional things like meditation, you know, religion, spirituality. Um, it can be many things. In fact, it is. But the sense is, is that when people can recognize that they do have an inner life and that it is based on mystery and they can begin to cultivate that sense of their life more, that by itself over time will lead to some type of a practice that will be transformative for them. So I, I kind of like turn it on its head and say it's it's hiding in plain sight. We just need to recognize it. Yeah, and 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 at the same time, I also feel the the pull to underline your question, Ross. Uh, I love the way Jeff you 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 pulled it around, and at the same time also bearing witness to um, that there is a, 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 a group of frontiers uh, who is smelling the edge and there is a group who is not doing it and there is a group who is even further away. And, and I wonder, has it always been like that? And where, where should, and where should we focus? I could, and so yeah, I don't have any answer to it, Ross. But I, I also just want to say I hear you. Uh, 
because I can also, yes, I am aware of if I see the, if I see the love in the person in front of me, uh, then it's more obvious or self-evident that that's what I will connect to. And if I don't see it, then it's, uh, that's not what I see. And at the same time, there is a lot of polarization in our society and there is a lot of holding on to the old and yeah, and scarcity uh, as well. And, uh, and I'm also can notice I have had for us, uh, some moments in this conversation, a curiosity in Ross on, you said you are almost obsessed to, to see what's in between the worlds or in between the, and I'm curious if, what is it that you see there? Like, because that's also what's in my reality, like how I view the world, like what's emerging in between mm. the worlds or the cultures or the nodes or the communities or yeah, the, what's there? Because I also see like when I, if I walk the streets and see people who, as you are pointing at Ross, maybe not contemplating or practicing and 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 I also see when I walk around, as you mentioned, Jeff, that everyone is doing that. We just have different relationships to it, but we are all in a way like a mirror of what's in what is, what is actually in between and what what are we a symbol of, both as mm -hmm. a community and a group and society and individuals. So I'm just curious of what you see. Yeah, I mean, I'm and I'm, I don't know if I will. Well, let's try. I'll try and answer that question. I might give a really rubbish answer. It's quite possible, but at the yeah. well, you can use my one of my tools. Like just try talk, you know. Just <laughs> yeah. try, and, and that means you don't have to have the right answer. You're just talking along, and maybe there you will find something there. I and maybe that. everything like, will be you know, stupid, you, and then you can just throw it away, you know. <laughs> when you've got writer's block, just write anything, and uh, hopefully it works out. Yeah. No, I mean, some, but I'd, I'd also. I'll try and answer your question, but I'd also like to reflect a little bit, Jeff, on your comment, because I love the optimism in, in your words, this idea that everybody is contemplative. And uh, in many ways, I would fully agree with you. And I would also say far too many of us are blindly consuming and far too many of us are totally distracted by, you know, are looking good on our selfies or, you know, just watching sort of funny animals or whatever that may be you know i mean exactly you did that very well um, <laughs> we should have a a, um, a competition who can look the best um some i can see the potential for deep and profound even profound contemplation in everybody but i also see this um blind consumption or whatever however we would call that and I, I suppose I, what I'm see then sort of this in-between space, which on the one hand is on the one hand is the potential for people to fight to recognize their their um, contemplative selves and to nurture that contemplative self and to through that practice hopefully become uh, you know more beautiful people more make a more positive contribution in the direction of thriving. Um, uh, on the other hand, I also see this, the fear in that, the, 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 uh, and the, the tension and the conflict in these in-between spaces. I think there's a lot of 
positive potential and negative potential in these in-between spaces. It's as if I sort of envisage this as sort of um, low energy points that have the potential to be very high energy, but that high energy can be destructive or constructive. And I think this is partly why I'm obsessed with seeing if we can bring an awareness to this in-betweenness, the potential, and to nurture that potential in the most positive ways that we possibly can. And I also, just also to say briefly, Jeff, I really like your challenge when I use that word, how do we, um, I can't remember exactly what I said, but you were essentially saying, let's you know, invite, it's more of an invitation to people, more than a, a drawing in of people. We're not pulling people in. I think perhaps we're creating the spaces within which people feel invited to step in. I really like that. Uh, opportunity and so to rephrase that question i wonder how might we invite people in to not just blindly consuming or not just hanging on to their existing system um which is often yeah i'll leave it there it feels it feels like i'm, I'm, I'm still not quite clear how we might make that invitation i i feel I like um Pamela, because I felt like it's a it's a moment where the where the four of us could consciously I would not call it switch gears, but move towards a part in our conversation which definitely from my side sensing into the series of this live streamed format ahead. It's not only about an emerging dialogue, it's also to consciously weave ecosystems together and give some hands-on examples and spark hope. Because the four people in the room are each representing an ecosystem within which they are connected to at least dozens of very powerful nodes in all parts of the planet. And I have the feeling to, to unpack that it makes sense and I would like to, to invite Ross to unpack a little bit like this obsession, right? Like with the weaving lab. So disclaimer, it's not a sales show here, but to be able to cross pollinate our efforts, just the four of us, including inviting the audience to step up as a call to action and say, where could I, as a human being, as a representative, as an activist, as an investor, as whatever, as a possible teammate or strategic partner, like really help manifest something together or change culture on the insides? So with that blurb, Ross, what's the weaving lab? <laughs> but before you, but before you go there, yeah. I'd just like to to uh, sure. to bring in what came just before you took the word, Alistair. Because it came out of your response, Ross, when you said like, oh, I really like that with the invitation instead of like trying to, uh, yeah, to pull people or, uh, or however you stated it. Uh, just uh, John Rebecca's name just came up for me. And, you know, he has a quote like stealing the culture from the below and doing what the Romans did. So I was just getting that energy out of what you out of your question, like how how can we invite people or facilitate people with an invitation? Uh, that um, actually, um, yeah, stealing the culture from from below. I don't even know like how that would look like, 
but I am I'm deadly curious. Uh, so yeah, maybe we have something here together that could become alive. So yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, first of all, I would definitely say I don't have uh, concrete answers to any of this, but I've got some, uh, you know, ideas that I can I can see things that often work uh, with people, and I can see, um, and I'm also really interested in this sort of inner and outer piece that you mentioned, Jeff. And I think there is an, an I think it's a really interesting. A relationship between the inner and outer so i can see people who are really good at inviting people to connect with each other and to themselves towards a shared purpose right and this is this is a there are facilitation techniques that are really good at doing this for example a friend of mine uh, luis camargo in colombia he has a beautiful way of bringing communities together through a process that begins with um, them engaging with the place that they live in together, uh, the, the ge geological history of that place. And he, he br brings them through a kind of timeline experience where they explore the, ge the geology of the place through the geography and then the human history. And through this process, they very often really connect with the place, with each other and with themselves. Uh, internally so it's a lovely beautiful uh, way of doing it and on top of that then i know people who are really good at inviting people to move beyond just sharing a purpose to sharing resources and opportunities and processes in other words to helping people collaborate or as you say jeff coordinate with each other for systemic impact so going deep into what are the root causes of the problems how can we work together to share what we've got in order to collectively um, effect deep, enduring systemic uh, impact? And then on top of that, I think there's this idea that it's not enough just to do that and to think that you've now washed your hands, you've affected systemic impact, and now you can go home because, of course, we've got to move from what are often very static, uh, inert systems. If you think of education systems, for example, they're incredibly inert. Uh, the cap capitalist systems tend to be extremely inert. We need to more move towards more organic, uh, consciously evolving systems. And so there's this other piece, which is around facilitating people learning together to iterate and evolve together so that the system change that they're affecting becomes continuous and continuously improving. That's all the sort of outer work, which is really interesting. That's the sort of, in, in many ways, the outer work of, of weaving. But unless there is conscious attention paid to the inner work, the, the, the becoming the system we want to see, I think none of this makes any sense. So what's really critical as one facilitates this outer work, I think, is to model the inner work that's needed. So if you want a system which is more empathic, you need to model increasing empathy um, and compassion and self-awareness and curiosity and all of those things that we know are, are fundamental. 
So a lot of this, I think, starts this invitation that we've been talking about, I think, is must start with a modeling of a, a certain way of, of being, I think. Because otherwise, I think it's an inauthentic invitation and is more likely to feel like you're being pulled or pushed into a process, which isn't going to work. That would be my um, initial take on it, at least. I can notice that uh, I would like to build on that, Ross. Um, and, and I also want to weave it back to the beginning of the conversation when you mentioned um, the, the story uh, that you can see between being and doing and the separation between them. And uh, for me, there is also, uh, out of the one you mentioned, where I actually also agree with you, and I'm also looking at, for example, one um, project and small community that I am uh, have been a co-initiator for, the Nordic Women's Gathering. It's a beacon in the Nordic to um, uh, yeah, it's just holding the, the, the exploration of womanhood in the 21st century and the feminine principle. And um, except the things you mentioned, there is also another, and that's like we we also are engaging uh, with the principle or the force of eros. And eros for me, I, what I, if I would unpack it a little bit, as you pointed out, Alistair, in the beginning, for me, it's life force. And it's the force that fuels the, the whole evolutionary process in the universe. And that is fueling the mystery of life. And um, I also see that what I can see more and more is that actually in that, Jeff, as you pointed out in, in the conversation, that COVID has brought a shift in consciousness that we are aware of, we both fragile and interconnected and need to cooperate, that in that interconnectedness, that we actually are a impulse, like we are an un, unbroken lineage of life. So we are if we choose to become aware of, we have a possibility to be connected to life force. And for me, that is also part of the feminine leadership of actually being interconnected with also my body and my womb intelligence, of being able to, to sense and spark where to do actions out of life force energy. And, and, that can, and also how how can organizations and groups actually move from that impulse, that creative impulse? And, 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 and I see that when we talk about regenerative, um, like the re regenerative shift, like a society or farming or leadership or well, whatever word we put behind regenerative, I see that it is about living from that emergent future the future is created in every now. So being connected to life force and, and sensing in deeply and sensing is beyond the mental intelligence to sense in as a group or a community or organization 
what is actually the right next step that will take us on our next movement in the evolutionary process we're in. Um, and I don't know if I make any sense right now, but I, I, I see that as an interesting perspective to keep on exploring of um, what if we are truly guided, if we allow us to be connected to life itself. Uh, and, and, and I also would like to point at me, myself, in this conversation has pointed at the individual. And I, I heard that also in our conversation in general. And I also see that that the group intelligence and how we can open and foster condition in a group intelligence of like, okay, what is actually here? What is it that we as a group, uh, uh, a shared group awareness can be aware of? Um, so yeah, so I just wanna bring that in as well. Because when we, if I go back to Nordic Women's Gathering, for example, when we create a gathering, we are having a structure that you could say is the masculine principle. Like there is a structure that can hold the chaos, that can hold the emergence that wants to come forward. And so we can shift and change and we're still holding the direction. And, and, and I see that in like... Um, organizations that are more teal based that's also what is moving forward and i wonder how can we midwife more of that i don't have any answers to it i, I can just see a lot of it in different circles We'll try to build a second time a bridge towards anchoring that in our respective ecosystems and give an example of the four of us meeting in this room together. How can we midwife and birth that the four of us with our respective ecosystems, organizations and the mutual leverage we could consciously unlock moves from a dialogue, a conversation beyond a signed LOI on a strategic partnership towards true collaboration. And this is really where we as a human species are pretty blind, right? I mean, we come, we come from a tribal background, 99% of humanity, we, you know, it's still our brains are hardwired from like to how, 50,000 years back or so in space time, because the crucial question for me is really, how can we create a culture supported by IT infrastructure where truly Pamela's intelligence and wisdom and tool set and her adjacent contacts could cross-pollinate, intersect with the weaving lab and with Jeff's pro-social. So I'm really wrestling, not on this micro to meso level, but more on this, like how can we coordinate collaboration and synergy on a multiple groups to large cohorts of groups? 
because I, I feel in the middle, the guardian knot we need to untangle or help midwife to unlock the possibility in the middle is we're stuck on a national level, on a supranational level or a global level. It's just multiple gridlocks. People are flying in for the 26th time and it's literally just blah, 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 nothing happening, right? So clearly that is not the way forward. So in the middle is that leading from errors, we're connected and sensing into that. But how can, could we just, as we are, uh, unlock that? So, so I want to invite that uh, as a guiding question towards the, you know, half next, maybe half an hour. And, and I truly think for that to unpack a little bit our backgrounds, from the Weaving Lab, from Ross, Jeff's ProSocial, Pamela's, your background literally makes sense also for the audience. So again, Ross, what's the Weaving Lab? <laughs> what, are you, what are you so obsessed with there? You say I didn't answer your question, I, was, I thought I was distinguished. I feel very no, you can't even answer. To a guy who already knows a little bit about the weaving yeah, like okay. literally just like <laughs> what are you obsessed with what well, so what we are a, we're a global community of people um let's say 500 people maybe less i don't know um who are all committed to advancing the practices of weaving and the profession of weaving so Everybody is practicing this thing we call weaving, which is connecting people to shared purpose, fostering collaborations for systemic impact, learning together, facilitating learning together, and modeling or being the system that we wish to see in the direction of thriving or universal well being. So, this is a community of people, effectively a community of practice. People doing all sorts of different things. People who are weaving communities in education, weaving communities in, in health, weaving communities of social entrepreneurs, weaving uh, business people together to walk in this direction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's effectively what we, what we are. And I just to um, challenge the question a little bit, Alistair, because I. Um, I, he I hear what you're saying, but I'm also conscious that none of us can collaborate with everybody in, in the sense that collaboration is, you know, a kind of an intense experience of committing time to each other. Um, and that's not to say we we four couldn't collaborate, but I think it's worth noting that we can't collaborate with everybody. And however, I think that just this conversation is itself a way of connecting our respective networks, because I know that I'm going to take back into the weaving lab the ideas and some of the words and certainly the energy that I'm feeling from you three, and that will permeate my uh, the, the weaving lab community. So I think actually through this dialogue, we are connecting our respective um, uh, communities. And I think conversation is a prerequisite to change. It's not enough but I just cannot imagine any change coming about without conversation because change is energizing and you want to talk about it and talking about it allows you to see things that allow you to change. So just to um, throw that out there. 
allow me allow me uh, two questions um if you were to give into the space in between us two or three nuggets like the gold that you were um bringing from the weaving lab and also one or two like difficult questions that you're wrestling with especially from this question of how can we facilitate large-scale uh, cultural change i'm curious on both the nuggets and what you're struggling with yeah i mean a Goals are to, I think, help more people see the work that they're doing as weaving. This isn't to push at the, the word particularly, but it's to, to we, we meet people all the time who say when they when I explain what weaving is, they'll say, oh, that's what I that's what I do. And I've never really thought much about it. I've never particularly valued it or I feel undervalued. And because they haven't really thought about it, they haven't particularly talked about it or reflected on it, or, and therefore haven't really found a way of focusing on getting better at it. It's not an easy practice. I, I think I, when I see you guys, I think all you're all weaving in your own respective ways. And you all know how really difficult it can be. It's very nuanced, complex work. So one of the things we want to do is to just for people to talk about it more, to recognize it in themselves, and then to step into a commitment to practice weaving more intentionally in order to get better at it, to share it more, and by virtue of getting better at it and sharing more, fostering more connections, more collaboration, more systemic impact, more conscious evolution. So I think it's about... In other words, bringing attention to this as a practice and as a profession. So that would be the, the probably the uh, the nugget I would introduce into the middle. Um, there's a real, and there are all sorts of challenges in this. A lot of people are very resistant to the word. They say, oh, another fad, or it sounds too hippie or new age, or it's all a bit vague or it's just you know yet another leadership book in the making or whatever and i kind of agree with all of that in many ways but it's just a useful uh, metaphor but there is a challenge in getting people to engage seriously with this there's also a challenge because there's this kind of a, a slight grayness or vagueness about it and this is this, I would also say this is about the weaving lab. It's it's actually not very easy to describe what we are. We're not really an organization. Nobody gets paid to do it. We're just a, are we a community? I think we are. Are we a community practice? Possibly, I don't know. So, you know, I think we've in many ways deliberately avoided hard labels because I think weaving by definition isn't a hard science. And the spaces in between things are often slightly vague. There's this kind of fogginess to it, which I think is all part of weaving. But that's really difficult for people. It's extremely difficult to fund this kind of work. 
I mean, I'm really lucky. I get paid and I do weaving, but I don't call myself a weaver all the time because if I did, I don't think I'd get paid. <laughs> um, so there are all sorts of problems. But that anyway, to throw that one out. <laughs> I just love what you said. Like I see it on your business card, weaver. <laughs> and I remember I... I when I worked a lot with facilitating systemic shift in school, the school system, um, I had like the science pictures that I showed and I said like, yes, in they think in five to 10 years, half of the work that we are, that we know about will be gone because of that will be taken over by machines and, and automatic and so on. And then people get like a bit of scarcity and, and then it's like, no, 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 just like easy, you know, 50% of the job that would be coming, we don't even know what that is. <laughs> and I just, and now 10 years later, I'm just like receiving Weaver <laughs> as a new profession. So yeah, just um, how many more of these are coming forward? Hmm. What what I would like to, to bring here into the middle, unless obviously we don't know, but I truly think that 20 years ago, there was no community manager, right? Now, almost every company and organization, not just because of social media, right? But becomes aware that a community manager is somebody that holds the web of the stakeholders together and is paid for is pretty normal. And my understanding from an ecosystemic let's put the eco into brackets from a systemic perspective, is that even quote-unquote normal mainstream organizations, that's whatever, pick Nike or Adidas or Zalando, right? I mean, it would provide them most likely with a big chunk of competitive advantage if they were to pay full-time ecosystem weavers that are kind of like the guys sniffing out and cross-pollinating and weaving, you know, flying in new opportunities, sensing I, I, into the space in between. I, I'd put a bet, like personal, Alistair Langer bet, who listens to the podcast in 10 years from now, I would say like Ecosystem Weaver becomes in as much as a normal profession, like as a community manager. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a profession deserving of recognition and, um, and and reward. At the same time, I think it shouldn't be only the preserve of specialists. I think it's something that probably every kid should learn. Everybody should try and learn. You know, connecting the dots, spotting patterns, bringing people, projects, places together for um, synergistic purposes. Um, it, it, it's it's more i'm actually much more interested in the practice than i am in the professional though i do also believe that the profession is a critical factor moving forwards i'm i'm so curious since since i'm the host inviting to that virtual um room and uh, um, emergent unknown in between all of us and um, i would love to ha hand over to to jeff and see how he would uh, phrase a uh, pro-social and the endeavor of pro-social um, um, ahead. I'm just really curious, Jeff. Well, even before I, I do that, I'd like to share something else I'm noticing. Um, in this 
this gathering is an example of that. Uh, something else has been happening, you know, over the last 18 months that for those that are paying attention, they see it very clearly. There's always been good people in good organizations doing good things. But what's happening now is that they're finding each other in really meaningful ways with the willingness to cooperate, the willingness to engage in new letter, uh, levels. And, and it also, there's an inner and outer to that because part of that process is a reimagining what the organization is and what its part is in this larger ecosystem. What I'm, I'm learning, what I'm witnessing happening, I'm also um, learning from somebody that I work with, David Sloan Wilson, who is, um, uh, you know, he's an evolutionary biologist uh, and an evolutionary scientist. Um, and so I'm learning about things from kind of a biological and evolutionary standpoint. And the more I learn about it from a cultural standpoint, I realize, oh my God, it, it works just like organisms work. And what is developing and what is unfolding is actually very evolutionary and very scientific. It's not just aspirational, but it's something that actually can be evidenced. And, and so this, this weaving is taking place. And one of the things that I've been witnessing, and I'll bet you have too, and I bet your audience has too, and that is, is that there's an increase in cases of meaningful coincidence, serendipity, in synchronicity. I mean, like on a scale, like never before, that's always been happening too, but it seems like it's gathering steam. And so something's happening with that. It's almost like, you know, the, the corpus callosum or the you know central fissure of the brain where the hemispheres are connecting. And all of a sudden, energetic relationships are able to form and pass and create new pathways that weren't, weren't even possible before. So I, I see a couple things that's happening. One is that this weaving, weaving thank you very much, uh, Ross and the network of weavers, and thank you very much, Pamela, in your network of weavers and Alistair. Um, but these weavers are finding each other. And this is also part of this really great news. But when and as they find each other, then what? So it's like this thing of, okay, we need to cooperate. How do we do it? And so this is kind of where pro-social world kind of comes in. It's based on the Nobel Prize winning work of Eleanor Ostrom, which amazingly enough, the first woman to ever win the Nobel Prize in economics, you know, shattering the glass ceiling. And her and her husband were researchers. They didn't like think up the core design principles that won the Nobel Prize. They witnessed it. They witnessed it in communities and groups all over the world. They had no connection to one another, that they all found ways to cooperate and then avoid what's known as the tragedy of the commons in very similar ways. So the tragedy of the commons is basically when you have a, a common pool resource, whether it's a field or a water source, and you have ungoverned competition for that limited resource, it tanks the resource. But human beings have found out how to avoid that tragedy in very similar ways. 
And what they documented is something called the eight core design principles of ProSocial. And what we've discovered is that's trainable and it's repeatable. And that is really good news. And not only is it trainable and repeatable for groups, so this is about groups, but it's not just about groups. It's about groups of groups because it's scalable on any level up to the, to the global level. Um, and it's the essentially the playbook for cooperation. And there's a research dimension to it so that it can be based on evidence that can be documented. And also there's feedback there. And so here, here's how I'm weaving it into this weaving uh, story is that part of what's also happening is that there's this coming together of these technology platforms because part of the problem right now is platform fatigue. There's just too darn many of them and nobody wants to keep learning a new one and everybody wants you to use theirs, right? Well, you kind of can't get there from here. So part of what's happening is just as there is a realization among groups and organizations, there's a realization amongst technologists and technology visionaries and platform providers of a need to cooperate. You know, call it interoperability, where platforms are able to access and play friendly with other platforms. So you don't have to just you know, go here, you know, zero-sum game, um, a panacea, but go wherever you are, and then you can weave in, connect with the others. So part of what I see happening, Ross, and, and um, I would love to collaborate with you on this, is that um, the, there's a, uh, a technology um, ecosystem of ecosystems, network of networks that's beginning to emerge. And um, in this environment is a place where the collective wisdom of how one group is doing this can be shared with others so that there's a cross fertilization. And when this begins to happen on larger and lar larger levels, there's like a vicarious learning that comes with that. And then the next thing you know, it's like the nervous system of the brain. The world, um, I, I, what I can envision is a substratum of these organizations, nodes, networks, um, groups and communities all over the world interconnected and intercommunicating and intercooperating with one another. And the thing is, is that this isn't just visionary and aspirational. I'm telling you, I can see it, it's forming. Um, and it's through this kind of taking it from conversation and ideas and into implementation, in, implementation and action, because that's what's needed now. Uh, think takes and things like that, it's great, it's awesome but we need action. And so taking conversations like this and weaving them into something that's tangible and executable um, in the best sense of the word, that's where we need to go. And, and it's beginning to happen. Oh, I love, I, I want to riff off action because I've invited you and the audience to round about 90 minutes. So we're approaching The last minutes we don't need to end up exactly on time but if there were an invitation from my side in the middle i have the feeling we need a lot of more women pamela 
please connect with Ross and Jeff. So many things to do. And maybe some more women from the Nordics. Disclaimer for the audience, please also women from the global south, right? But I think we get we get the joke. Secondly, and maybe that's a good thing already, like closing from my side and handing over to you to find like a brackets for the conversation is I was just literally hopping off a strategy call with another piece in my portfolio, which is Open Future Coalition, where we were talking about issuing an interoperability token, which makes all these amazing complementary cryptocurrencies really possible to work together. And that would enable the networks of networks to also capitalize on the multiple capitals exchanged. So what I see ahead for the first time in the history of humanity, in as much as I studied it from a sociological, but also macroeconomical point of view, is that we have the emergence of a global nervous ecosystem and for the first time, the technological infrastructure that also serves multiple capitals. So not only the capital capital, meaning the monetary capital. Mm. And this really unlocks a lot of potential to weave together this, let's make it tens of thousands of nonprofit organizations, associations, loose networks, um, for-purpose enterprises, but also some of the benevolent whales, you know, that profit from the old system, but would like to contribute. So that was a big blurb, uh, <laughs> my Alistair blurb as the bracket. But yeah, happy to yeah. hand over to whomever, you know, wants to riff off that in the audience. Yeah, I would probably not riff off exactly that. I will go a little bit back in the conversation because I also would like to close with... Um, uh, one one concept or training, or you could say it's a spiritual practice that I am engaged in, is Emerge Dialoguing. And that's our spiritual practice for the open society, where we are practicing to dialoguing from the space in between us. And I can notice, Ross, when I listen to you, that I'm really curious in one way, in what way these, what you're doing and what I'm doing, these two different practices, what is actually connecting and what's uh, different and what can be learned from it and yeah so I'm, i can just notice that uh, and this also brings my curiosity of yeah you say are we a community are we this are we that you know it also brings a curiosity to be so not defined uh, and, and if there is like good parts with that and i also hear that there could be uh, not so good parts with it and and, and yeah so I, I could just notice it evokes curiosity and I said, and also I will pick up, you said, very beautifully used the word, I will bring that. So that, that for me is already a conception point of, you said modeling the shift. We need to modeling the shift as we're also doing practices and then we're bringing that to the outward. Because uh, I also um, um, host masterclasses in facilitating the shift to, to invite profound facilitators to step into uh, actually facilitating this shift of like hospicing what systemically needs wants to die and midwifing that what wants to be born, and one thing that I've been 
you could say witnessing if I, you, I love the way you Jeff said research is kind of witnessing. I never, yeah, I never put these two together. So I will bring that as well. I think it's profoundly beautiful, you know, that the quality of the facilitator's presence, like the being is so important for be able to hold that systemic shift they to hold the intensity because dying and birthing in our reality is intense for most people and and also uh, jeff that different communities that i'm a part of i like i i facilitate trainings or conversations on different cutting edge platforms digital platforms and i get really curious of what you brought in jeff how these can be yeah what is the future of that uh, because i could also notice people getting tired of yeah learning and being on different platforms so yeah there is a lot of curiosity that i leave this conversation with and um yeah and thank you for the invitation alistair but i do also think that i would like to point out that There is a quality in this conversation that I would address as you could a uh, feminine quality, and that is there is a lot of listening in this space. So I, I think we all need to bring that forward for being able to facilitate a radical shift that we want to see in the world. Because if it's already there, then we just maybe need to listen even deeper to, uh, to be a part of facilitating it. And from there, <laughs> get shit done. But then that's that's that, that's obvious uh, because you just show up for what wants to happen and what wants to be created. And that's in one way maybe can sound fluffy, but it's hardcore work because it's getting out there in the unknown and stepping out of the way and and show up for yeah the spark of life. And I'm really curious of the people who are part of this conversation, like uh, if there is any questions or perspectives or, yeah, maybe resistment or whatever. Yeah, I could just notice I have a curiosity of the field we're sitting in. Hmm. And I'd certainly love to. I mean, I'm definitely feeling very uh, drawn to continue the conversation. Uh, very curious about a lot of what I've heard with a view to... Uh, as you were suggesting, Alistair, collaborating and affecting deeper, enduring systemic change. Um, so very would love to continue the conversation. Hmm. Jeff, can I ask you a question? Sure. Is there any difference between collaboration and cooperation for you? Yes, that's a good question. Um, I believe there is. Um, and so I'll, I'll put it this way. It's, um, one time I was asked to do a talk at the, the Parliament of World Religions on uh, evolutionary spirituality. And as I look back on it, I could see that it kind of uh, began with ecumenism, which is dialogue within a tradition. And then it went from that to interfaith, which is tolerance. Uh, you know, open to understanding between traditions. 
And then it evolved from there to interreligious, which is kind of where it is now, which is dialogue, uh, collaboration. And then from that to this leading edge, which is interspirituality, which is where we practice each other's practices. We uh, are enriched from each other's uh, traditions and wisdom. And so collaboration, you begin with collaboration, but uh, cooperation is active and ongoing. And so I think that's the difference, active and in, in even more experiential than collaboration. Thank you. Thank you for making that distinction. Beautiful. Thank you. I love that, by the way. And I'm just to throw in the, another word which comes up a lot in my work, which is co-creation, which seems to be this, yeah. you know, a, a step. I don't know if it's this, you know, I don't know if it's alongside or an evolution of, but that idea of actually um, creating life together. Mm. One final thing that just comes to my mind here, and it's, you know, so much of what we talk about, if you were to boil it down to its essence, it's really exchange of energy on many, many different levels, subtle energy, not so subtle energy, but this exchange of energy in all of its different forms. And I think that another thing that's different about where we are now, just like this new story is something that is emerging within the individual, but on the, in a collective way, more and more people are realizing kind of the same thing, is that the new form of community and interconnection between communities where is where the groups and the communities embody the principles themselves. So it's not like a prescription, here it is, do that, and then you get this. No, here's two sticks. You got to rub them together to make fire but they make the fire. Nobody can give them the fire. And so when the communities begin to do this work, which is both inner and outer, as a community, then their center of gravities is in them. And when it's in them, that's powerful. Then they can engage from that center with others as well. And then larger groups can form, again, with a common center, a common aim at the center. So I think that this is a big, this is a really important thing, is that when the, both the individual and the group own the center, then you can't blame it on anybody else. You're responsible for all of it. And if you're looking, you realize you have to take it beyond your corpus. You have to, you have to give it away outside. Mm. To the space in between. Absolutely, that's, that's a beautiful ending. Where the, Thanks, mystery, where, where the mystery can unfold. Exactly. To the great mystery and the love. <laughs> well said, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. I'm just ending the broadcast and then we can stay for a moment being. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. You. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>